Good morning. My name's Tony. I'll be reading the text that my brother Ben's going to be preaching from this morning. This is uh, John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. It's on page 840 in the Pew Bible. If you want to read along, it'll be on the screen, I think, as well. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, uh, if we've not met, my name is Ben. I'm, I'm one of the pastor elders here at Community, and uh, I also am commissioned by this church to plant a Midtown Community Church in the city of Harrisburg, which, uh, which, which is going to be launching here shortly. And so as I begin my sermon this morning, I have uh, two updates to share with you with regard to the planting of, of MCC. Um, first is that today is the, the last Sunday of our financial push to raise funds for this plant. So we launched a campaign back in February. And so that's why for the last time, I promise you won't see these again after this Sunday, but we printed these pledge cards in the bulletin again. If you have not seen those, um, we would just ask that you please prayerfully consider what you might give over and above your normal tithes and offerings to this church to see us get off the ground at a Midtown Community Church. We, we've had the goal to raise um, $500,000 for that, and we are about 50,000 short of our goal, and so, which is amazing that the Lord has brought us that far, but let's see if we can get it over the finish line together. Second, I have an exciting announcement that only a few of you in this room have heard. So, first time breaking news here at Community. So, in, in launching a new church, I, I've like realized that there's this constant tension between slowness and speed. Like everything in you wants to be excited and go, go, go and just get the thing off the ground. But, but in order to, to have a church not just be able to survive a few years but actually thrive for the long haul, there's a lot of things that, that you need to set up and put in place with regard to people and finances and ministry structures to ensure that it, it's set up to, to, to succeed for the long haul. So we planned with all that in mind to launch in January. But God has been so kind to us in giving us people for a core team and providing our financial needs, in giving us a building, 
and in, in the ways in which he's opened up relationships with non-Christians, that we looked around at each other this, for the last few weeks and we're like, what are we waiting for? And so we're not going to wait. We're going to launch Midtown Community Church in October, so, um, which we are very excited about. Yeah. And uh, th- there's really nothing except to, to praise God for that. Uh, we could have never foreseen that that would be a possibility. And so uh, here we are. And um, a lot of you might have questions about that that I don't have answers to yet. <laughs> We're still trying to work out a lot of the details. But I will say, I know some of you here at church have said, hey, what can, I'm not going with the church plant, but what can I do to be involved? That is coming, and it's coming soon, because we need help to get this thing off the ground in October. So please keep your, your eyes and ears peeled for more announcements and more information about that. With all that said... Let's pray one more time, and let's turn then our attention to this text in John chapter 8. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your provision. Uh, Thank you for the ways in which you have uh, made doors open up for us to see this church planted that um, I I couldn't have imagined. Um, And so we give you the praise and glory for that. We know that your spirit goes before us, and we pray, Lord, like Uh, the men in the parable of the talents, that you would help us not to squander what we've been given. Help us to be responsible stewards of the things that you've given. And Lord, may your spirit use our efforts to draw men and women to Jesus and make a dent in the city of Harrisburg for the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness, we pray. And Lord, as we come uh, to this text now, would you open our eyes? And as I preach, Lord, I pray that you would give me what I don't have and empower me by your spirit. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, the passage before us here in John 8 uh, contains one of the most beloved stories of Jesus in all of the Gospels. I think it's safe to say. And this beloved story in John 8 raises two particular questions that I'd imagine many of you here this morning either have in the back of your mind currently or have recently wrestled with. The first of those questions is, how can I trust a book that was written down over 2,000 years ago as the rule and guide for my present-day Christian faith and practice? How do we trust the Bible? How can we trust the Bible? Why should we trust the Bible? That's question number one. And the second question is how should the church relate to sexually sinful and broken people? Uh, For many of you in this room this morning, that question hits close to home. You might be asking, how can I love my child who's kind of walked away from Christianity and is just sleeping around with whoever they choose? Or or how can I seek to love a spouse who's cheated on me? And this one is much more complicated on many sides, but, but how should I love my friend who just came out to me? How do I engage in a way with them that's loving, yet doesn't compromise the truth? And this is a question to which the world at large is basically begging the church to have a compelling answer for. And so these two crucially 
important questions with massive implications for our lives are the two questions that in the next 30 minutes we're going to try to tackle from this text. So are you with me? Let's do this. All right, so that's going to be our outline this morning. We're just going to look at those two questions. So number one, how can I trust the Bible? What's the place of this story in the Bible? Now, those of you who, who are in weekly worship with us here at Community and who pay attention will notice that something was left unsaid this morning that is normally said after the reading of God's word. Uh, Tony, how could you forget to say this is God's word after we read? I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I asked him not to do that. Um, but, uh, but, but it's intentional, and the reason why I asked him to do that is because of that phrase that we see in our Bibles right before verse 53 that says, the earliest manuscripts do not contain 753 through 811. And what do we do with that? What does that mean? And, and how does that affect the way that I view not only this story, but, but my Bible as a whole? Well, we're going to try to answer that question in a few minutes, I hope, but I will say, if this doesn't, like, if this isn't a question that's, that's burning in your soul, I would ask you, pay attention, stick with us. The next eight to ten minutes are going to feel a little bit different than a sermon. They're probably going to feel a little bit more like a lecture, and that's on purpose, so just hang with us, and I think it will be beneficial for all of us. So in the first century, uh, at the time when the New Testament was written, the only way to preserve a book was through handwritten copying. You didn't have uh, the printing press or anything like we have now. It was just through handwritten copying. And although we don't have an original copy of the New Testament documents, what we do have are thousands of th and thousands of copies or manuscripts of the New Testament documents. We have about 6,000 in the original Greek uh, language, and then about 20,000 other ones in different languages, some dating back to the time directly after the apostles would have written these New Testament books. Now, in all of that copying, you can imagine that a scribe would make an error, especially without autocorrect. <laughs> he might misspell a word or, or miss a word or two as it's getting late and he's working by candlelight and the, and the light from his candle on his desk is growing dim. But, but this abundance of manuscripts and the careful attention paid to copying these manuscripts led to the practice of textual criticism in, in the early church, where scribes would compare manuscripts against each other to determine what was most likely the original reading. Now, John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11 is probably the largest such, such discrepancy in the New Testament. So, so these verses are absent from almost every Greek New Testament manuscript of John's gospel that's remotely close to, to early. And all the church fathers, out of all the church fathers, none of them address them in any of their writings. Some of the manuscripts, which do contain this story though, the later ones, place it in different locations in the New Testament. This is fascinating. So, so if you look at some of the later manuscripts, this story actually shows up in some at various points in John chapter 7, in some at the end of John's gospel in John, at John 21, and then in some it actually shows up in Luke chapter 21. 
So it's, it's kind of all over the place, depending on the manuscript, where this story shows up. And if you read it straight through, from the end of chapter 7 through chapter 8 to verse 12, you'll notice it, it seems a little bit clunky. So at the end of chapter 7, Jesus is teaching to a large crowd. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, the crowd, saying, and he starts talking. But at the end of the story that we read this morning, the whole crowd dissipates, leaving just Jesus and the woman standing there. It seems a little bit odd. Maybe like it doesn't fit right here in the text. But, but with all of that said, uh, there is early church historical record of this story being told among followers of Jesus in, in kind of the late first, early second century. So the generation after the apostles. And many theologians like Augustine or Ambrose in the centuries that followed, they they talk about this story often. It was a beloved story to them. And I would say ever since the earliest days of the church, Christians have cherished this story. And I would say the reason why we cherish this story is because it really does align with the, the portrait of Jesus that we see in the rest of the New Testament. So here's my, my proposal, my, my humble proposal for what I think is going on here with this text. I would say that this text before us this morning likely was not a part of the original text of John's gospel, but this story likely does record an actual historical account from Jesus's life. So what the heck do we do with that? Like, <laughs> Like, do I, do I just not preach it? Do we just sit down and, and then that be that? What do we do? And, and for some of you, this might raise all kinds of questions, right? Like, if we can't trust this account, you might say, if this occurs here, then, then where else might it occur in my Bible? How, how can I trust the other parts of my Bible that they aren't just similar to this one? And, and, and if we're going to place the freight of our lives onto the testimony of this book, then I would encourage you, questions like this are actually good to ask. It's good that we, that we suss out this book and see, is it reliable or not? And so I would say to, to those of you struggling this morning with questions like these, and if this just raises those questions in your mind, here is my encouragement to you. The fact that these Uh, that this passage has been flagged by not just our modern translations, but by manuscripts for for thousands of years, ever since this first showed up, is actually gives us more reason to trust the reliability of the New Testament, not less. The fact that these are flagged allows us to trust the Bible more, not less. How is that the case? Three quick reasons. First, we see that the Bible has nothing to hide. Like, the Bible is not on a PR campaign. Um, like, think about the stories of the, the New Testament even. Like, like think about the, 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 the apostles. Like, they had every chance to scrub the New Testament record of all of their failings and areas where they looked like complete idiots. P- Peter was the source material for Mark's gospel. Like, Peter could have easily been like, hey, Mark, can we, like, scrub some of this stuff out? Because this doesn't make me look very good. But he doesn't. We, we see it in there. 
Not only that, that we, the New Testament consciously includes stories that highlight social taboos of that day and age. Probably the most prominent one being that, that the main eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women, who in that time, their eyewitness testimony was not counted as valid. And yet the New Testament says, no, they were the first ones that saw Jesus, and we're going to take their testimony as valid. That's something you might want to scrub out. And this is precisely the case with textual discrepancies between manuscripts of the New Testament as well. And I would say built into Christianity and the approach that we have to our sacred text is a uniquely critical and rational approach that doesn't seek to hide things or bury them under the rug. And, and, if, and if copyists tried to hide things or, or smooth them over, other copyists would come along and say, nope, we're going to flag that. That doesn't really square with the rest of what the Bible says. Second reason why flagging it actually causes us to trust, should cause us to trust the Bible more, is I would say this text stands out for a reason. So only here and in Mark chapter 16, at the very end of Mark's gospel, do we have bracketed text like this where a big section is called into question for its reliability. Let me say it like this. If you were to fill this whole wall behind me with black thumbtacks, little black thumbtacks, the whole wall covered in them, and then at various points you had like several neon green individual thumbtacks placed on the wall, those green thumbtacks would stand out as unique among the black background. But if you had an equal amount of black and green thumbtacks, they would start to just paint one picture together. You could still distinguish between them, but they would start to look really, really similar, like it was just one, all of one muddled thing. I would say John 8 here is one of the, the green thumbtacks against a backdrop of reliability against a backdrop of limited and almost exclusively inconsequential textual errors. This one stands out for a reason, because this is not common. And lastly, and this one might, might be the most stretching, so hang with me, and then we'll get to what's more typically a sermon. Uh, having something like this in our Bibles um, doesn't threaten our doctrine of biblical inspiration, but we should see it as being perfectly in line with how we view the Bible's inspiration working by the Holy Spirit. Now, what the heck do I mean by that? Well, uh, Christians do not hold to a dictation theory of inspiration, meaning that we don't hold to the fact that God used men like, chan like he channeled himself through men where men kind of like blacked out and God wrote the New Testament through them like this and they woke up and they're like, oh, there's John's gospel. <laughs> That's not how inspiration works. Rather, we believe in historic verbal inspiration, which means that God in his providence used the unique personalities, life stories, and even writing styles of the New Testament authors to write the New Testament. He providentially worked in all of that. So when we ask the question, who wrote the Gospel of John, John or the Holy Spirit, the right answer is yes, both. 
And if you want to look at that, actually the author of Hebrews does this in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. At one point he says, and the Holy Spirit said, and he quotes Psalm 95, and then a chapter later he says, and David said, and he quotes the same psalm. It's, it's pretty wild. But this also means then that in God's providence, he preserved these documents through the means of history like scribal copying. Our doctrine of inspiration teaches us that God got down into the messiness of history and spoke to us through human authors and providentially preserved these documents through two millennia. He didn't just drop them down out of the sky. He used human beings to bring these documents into existence. So when we encounter little things like this, we shouldn't be surprised by that. This is God working in history to bring us his word. All right, one more quick thing. If you want to learn more about the process of textual criticism, which I know some of you in here are like, I never want to talk about this ever again, thank you. Um, but, but if this is a question that is burning on your heart and mind, just two books I would recommend. One of them uh, is this book right here called Canon Revisited by a guy named Michael Kruger, who's a New Testament scholar. Um, just personally, I read this in seminary. It was the single best book I read in all of my studies. It was wonderful. Um, so I would, we bought a few copies as a church that are up here. If you want one, come talk to me afterwards. would love to give you one. It's a commitment. You can see it's meaty, but it's really good. Um, the other one I'll say, we have a copy or two in our bookstore um, it's called Can We Trust the Gospels by a scholar named Peter Williams. It's another wonderful resource. Um, if you want to pick up either of those or, or talk with me about different questions that you might have, I'll be up here at the front after the service. Would love to talk with you more. So, how do we approach then preaching a text that may have not been in the original manuscript of the Gospel of John, but that likely happened in history? Not a question we usually ask before we preach. Here's the approach we're going to take. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning walking through the story, but we're going to be careful to ground its main theme in other texts from the New Testament scriptures. And I hope that you'll see that by doing that, the main theme and character of Jesus that comes out in this text sings in harmony with the rest of the New Testament. So if you would, read with me again, picking up in John chapter 8, verse 2, down through the middle of verse 6. Let's read this text. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, here's a question for, for all of us as we look at that first part of the text. How does one catch someone else in adultery? Especially in that era where you, you can't really necessarily see a text that somebody forgot to delete or something like that. It says very explicitly in verse 4 that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
And per the Jewish law, it couldn't be just one person, but it had to be at least two to three witnesses to see that and accuse her as viable eyewitnesses. In other words, the religious leaders sprung a coordinated trap to catch this woman. But notice, just this woman. The question we should ask is, where the heck is the man? Where is the man? The the Jewish law commanded in a situation of adultery that the man be brought for stoning as well. And yet he's nowhere to be seen. They intentionally bring the woman who is more vulnerable and more open to social shame while they wink at the man and let him go. And it becomes very clear why this is the case in verse 6. They set this trap not for the woman, but for Jesus. This woman is simply a pawn in their game to catch Jesus. They don't care about her. They don't care about justice. That becomes clear as you read the text. They could care less about justice. In fact, commentators tell us that stoning was not even practiced in urban areas like this at this time. It wasn't even a thing. They don't care about justice. They want to use her in their their greater religious power game to trap Jesus. And friends, our hearts work the same way as these religious leaders. Rather than identifying ourselves with sinful, broken people in love, we often use them as means to our own ends, as part of our own power plays, as ways to feel better about ourselves. Now, it doesn't appear super clearly to us, but Jesus here is pressed between a rock and a hard place. And I did not mean to have that pun as I typed that out, but it worked. On one side, Jesus is, is the preacher of grace, right? They've, they've witnessed this throughout his ministry. He's the one who welcomes the sinner and anyone who is weary and heavy laden to come to him for rest. But on the other side, he's the teacher of the law. If he doesn't stone her, he looks like he doesn't care about the Jewish law, like he doesn't care about what's true. And not only that, were he to proceed with this stoning, he would likely aggravate the Roman authorities as well, who, who weren't used to just stonings taking place in the middle of their town square here. Which will it be, Jesus, grace or truth? Let's keep reading. Middle of verse 6 there. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, just, we don't know what he wrote on the ground. I wish we did, but we don't know what he wrote on the ground. But when he stops writing, he responds brilliantly in verse 7 by quoting the Jewish law back to these men. His words in verse 7 are a direct reference to Deuteronomy 13 and 17, where it says that the witnesses and accusers of a crime must be the first ones to cast a stone. But, per those laws, they can only, be, they can only cast the stone if they are not participants in the crime itself. Now, these men, by not bringing the man who was also a part part of this adulterous act, are a part of the crime. They are guilty in and of that fact, so they are unable to cast the first stone. But let's think further, because I think this, this goes deeper than that. 
The Pharisees, as we know from passages like Matthew 19, also essentially held to no-fault divorce, where a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason, which Jesus explicitly calls sexual immorality. In other words, in a society where men could take advantage of women left and right, these men are no different, Jesus is saying. They may not have been in bed with her, but they were certainly taking advantage of her. And Jesus identifies with this sinful woman and speaks up for her to these religious men. And Jesus' words here show us how Christianity has historically been good news for the most vulnerable in society, especially women. Jesus' statement here forces these men to look in the mirror. And think about this. How relieved would that woman have been as these accusers stand around her, as they maybe hold stones in their hand for Jesus to say, let the one who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone. Imagine the relief that she would have felt. And Jesus' people historically have taken Jesus' posture here towards those who are the most vulnerable. This is precisely how the early church influenced Roman society around them. It was the Christian sexual ethic in the early church that gave the world such concepts as consent as a necessary part of marriage and sexuality. That wasn't just uh, like common knowledge. That's uniquely Christian. It was the church that provided the environment where shamed and discarded women like the one in our story could find care and rest and a home. The church ought to be the safest place for those whom society simply casts away as worthless and useless. So how do they respond to Jesus? Let's finish reading the rest of this story, verses 9 through 11. It says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Now, now put yourself in this story. Picture the drama of this. Like the, the fear this woman must have felt. These men drag her out of her home in the middle of sexual intimacy, throw her in front of a crowd, and threaten to stone her. And yet one by one, her accusers are silenced and walk away. And she's left standing face to face with God in the flesh. What will he say? Out of his mouth come those famous and beautiful words, neither do I condemn you. You see, she's standing before the one person on earth who can rightfully condemn her, and yet he says, I do not condemn you. How can this be? How can this woman stand before her judge and maker in the flesh and not receive condemnation? Bible commentators throughout the ages have asked this question. Does this not violate the truth and reality of her sin? 
But notice, Jesus never denies her sin. He assumes that she is a sinner who in and of herself is worthy of being condemned. And yet, he doesn't condemn her. Why? He doesn't condemn her because his identification with this woman doesn't stop here. It continues all the way to the cross. Jesus identifies with this woman and every other sinner like her all the way to death. As the Apostle Paul says, on the cross, Jesus himself became sin and received in himself the condemnation which our sin deserved so that when any person stands before him acknowledging their sin and brokenness, they can hear the same words as this woman, neither do I condemn you. It's amazing. This sounds a lot like what John said just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3 and some other beloved words of John's gospel. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's not truth or grace. Truth and grace are perfectly expressed in the life and death of Jesus, where the reality of our sin meets the sin-crushing reality of his grace and identification with us in love. And see what an encounter with the living Jesus calls us to then. How does the text end? Go and from now on sin no more. Thank God Jesus doesn't leave us as he finds us. No condemnation. When we hear the words, no condemnation spoken over us, it leads us to transformation. So, two concluding applications for us as we close this sermon. First, to those of you who are here who are sexually broken, whether that's because of sin done against you or sin that you've committed yourself. You may feel like people are around you at every moment ready to stone you. You may even have religious people that have thrown your sexual sin and pain back in your face. Jesus stands before you today in love and says to anyone here who would recognize their sin, I have silenced your accusers. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. To you who feel like you are too far gone for God or your spouse or anyone else to forgive you. To you who can't look other people in the eye because what you have done makes you feel gross. To you who feel like there is no way out of the pit of sin and darkness that you have dug yourself into, when you turn to the living Jesus, he does not condemn you. Jesus offers you his life-giving spirit who can rewrite the trajectory of your life, who can, who can help you to live into the fullness of eternal life, who, who in his eyes, sin no more is not an ultimatum. It's an invitation to life as you've never known it before. 
No matter what you did 20 years ago or what you did last night, you are not condemned. And under the power of the living Jesus, you can change. Second, to the church at large, and and to try to answer the question I posed at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus' self-sacrificial identification with us in our sin, by him dying for us on the cross, frees us to identify with other sinners and point them to Jesus. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. We're going to close with this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Brian really helpfully alluded to this in his prayer this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in these verses. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And at that point, I think it's easy for us to say, yes, that's right, you all won't inherit the kingdom of God. All of you out there, that's right. But what does it say in verse 11? And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Church, such were some of you. Those words kill any semblance of self-righteousness or condemnation of other sinners because they acknowledge that before the grace of God broke into our lives, we were all headed in the same direction. The religious leaders saw themselves as above this woman. And this story is an invitation to all of us to see ourselves and our story in the story of the woman. That's why here at Community we love the language of weak, wounded, and wayward. It's because that's that's what we're saying. Such were some of us. We can identify with people who are sinful and who are broken. So practically speaking, church, we do not compromise the truth by drawing near to sinners. In fact, as Christians, we compromise the truth when we refuse to draw near to other sinners like ourselves and show them grace. There are so many things in our culture that would threaten this posture of grace that would cause us to think otherwise. We don't have to shout down sexually sinful and broken people as if they were our enemies. We don't have to throw the first stone. And for many people in here, like I said at the beginning, this is really personal. Like this is, this is your friend. This is your child. This is maybe even your own spouse that we're talking about here if it's not your own story. And loving those people will likely involve speaking hard truths to them. But since we've experienced the grace of Jesus, since such were some of us, we ought to draw near to the sexually broken with our lives. 
our world needs Christians and the church as a whole to be a harbor for sexually sinful and broken people where they can encounter the living Jesus. Church, I'm gonna say this, I'll be done in a second. Our, our culture is so sexually confused. And the results of that in our lives, we experience this. It's not just out there. In our lives and the lives of more and more people is going to be shrapnel, damage because of this, because of living into this philosophy of life. The world needs the church to be a harbor from that. And our motto needs to be, as I love, Pastor Benjamin has drilled this into me after working with him for eight years. Our motto needs to be in these coming years, more people to love. Neither do we condemn you. The church can be a place where over time we together learn what it means to experience the grace of Jesus and sin no more in our lives. As Pastor Ray Ortland says a lot, and I love how he says this, in the safety of a gospel community, we together can begin to get our lives back. Our world needs us to be this kind of community. And so may people encounter the grace of Jesus in the flesh of this local church so that they are spurred on toward holiness and experiencing the love of Jesus because their story is our story too. Such were some of us, but we have been sanctified. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has come to us and said, neither do I condemn you. The only posture that makes sense is grace. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit and bring these truths to bear in our hearts. Help those of us who are tempted towards self-righteousness and pride to see ourselves in other people's stories, to know that without the grace of God, we ourselves would not be inheritors of your kingdom. But because of your grace and by your grace, we have a destiny that is bright and secure in the hope of Jesus. And I pray that that grace would cause us to be gracious to other people. And I pray, Spirit, that you would give us wisdom on how to live this out. There, there is so much that I have left unsaid, and I feel the weight of that. Would you come this week, even as this word rests on us, and would you give us your wisdom to seek how to apply this in our daily lives and all of the complexity of our lives and situations. Help us all to look to you, Jesus, as the great lover of our souls, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.